And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, September 5th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the outlook for Capitol Hill as the Senate, anyway, returns to Washington, plus a progress report from the chairman of the Defense Management Reform Commission. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the federal hiring process may be just on the verge of a long-needed transformation. The Chance to Compete Act seeks to modernize the way agencies hire by using skills as the basic criterion, shared certificates, and subject matter expertise. The bill easily cleared the House earlier this year. Now it has bipartisan support in the Senate. But federal HR experts say that without the right investments, the Chance to Compete Act, if enacted, would fall short of expectations. We get more now from Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And let's go through some of the Chance to Compete Act provisions, Drew. What does it say about that idea of skills-based hiring? This is something that has become very popular, very prevalent in recent years, something that's been talked about a lot more, this idea of skills-based hiring. It's not necessarily new. The Trump administration issued an executive order encouraging agencies to focus on skills-based hiring. But the Chance to Compete Act would take that a little bit step further just by codifying some of that language and building on it as well. So as part of the bill, OPM, one requirement for them would be that they have to build a platform detailing job duties that do have minimum educational requirements and reviewing different job descriptions to ensure that the educational requirements are there where they make sense, but then removing them when they don't make sense It's become quite popular for difficult-to-fill positions. For example, in cybersecurity, you're going to have a lot of people who may have gotten their skills elsewhere, not necessarily in college. So, you know, this has been a big push from presidential administrations and now in Congress. The Chance to Compete Act would just take it another step further. And then the idea of subject matter experts are also central in this bill. Again, not a brand new idea. And how would it change the use of subject matter experts? I guess who decides who's a subject matter expert, too, might be a question. Right. That is a good question. But the the bill generally sets the use of subject matter experts as more of a standard. So bringing them into the hiring process early and more often, both in creating job announcements as well as conducting resume reviews. This would be a requirement. Bring in subject matter experts to assess candidates on their technical skills and how they would fit into the organization. Again, it's something that agencies have been doing at least in a couple of pilots. For example, the Department of Health and Human Services, they've used SMEs a lot in the hiring process. They say it's been quite successful for them. Many agencies who have used it do say it is a really good practice, but there's also some challenges with that as well. Bob Levitt, who's Chief Human Capital Officer at HHS, explained why that's so difficult. Successful hiring is a function of that partnership. At the same time, some of the challenges that we see in doing this is that, to be brutally blunt, is the availability of time in some cases. Hiring managers, for example, or subject matter experts are also uh, fulfilling their mission and advancing mission. And uh, particularly over the past few years, as the Department of Health, um, the employees across the department have been prioritizing mission, advancing mission, and having the availability Uh, for uh, that is commensurate with the level of hiring that we've been doing is it is honestly challenging to balance those time requirements. 
Yeah, everybody's busy, but you need to spend the time you need to spend. If it comes to hiring people, you've got to just find it. And now, Drew, this bill also focuses on use of shared certificates. What are those and how would they work in federal hiring? Sharing certificates is something that agencies can do and have been able to do since a law from 2015. It generally lets agencies share a list of qualified applicants for a position. Once they've made a couple of hires, then they can give that list to other agencies who are hiring for a similar position. So it reduces some of the burden on HR staff in theory. They have, you know, the qualified lists already, and that means you get a little bit faster hiring process. You get more time to focus on the candidates you have on the list. And then from the applicant's perspective, they can see just one application reaching a lot more openings. So, you know, this is has been popular for agencies more recently, and it's gained a little bit of traction, but it did have a slow build. Jenny Mattingly, Vice President of Government Affairs at the Partnership for Public Service, explained what happened after the 2015 Competitive Service Act. That was really the first step to enabling agencies to be able to share, share certs. But that hadn't really been, even though the law had passed, that really wasn't a way that agencies did hiring. And so what happened, I think, is OPM would run an action. They'd have all these assessments. They'd get this great list of candidates. And then any agency could select off of that. What we saw from that is that OPM could do it. This idea of can agencies actually also do some of that work. That conversation has been ongoing, and we've seen more pulled hiring actions. We haven't seen a lot of cert sharing yet. And so I think this bill tries to address some of those issues. It puts this idea that we need to leverage economies of scale. And that's Jenny Mattingly of the Partnership for Public Service. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, and there's a big push toward technical assessments in the Chance to Compete Act. This thing is chock full. What are those, and how would that be different from how agencies do things now? There is a bigger push toward technical assessments rather than what agencies often use, which is self-reporting questionnaires. Lots of agencies use this in the hiring process, but it is a problem. For example, if you look at data from the General Services Administration, they have a dashboard showing that 92% of competitive open to the public job announcements relied on just the answers to a self-reporting questionnaire plus a resume review to determine if someone was eligible for a position. But of that 92%, just about half actually resulted in a hire. So there is kind of this drop-off between you know, using self-reporting questionnaires as the basis for determining if someone is qualified and then actually getting to that qualified person at the end of the day. It's also an issue for diversity and trying to get more applicants in the door. I heard more from Rob Seidner, who is a former Hill staffer who actually helped draft the Chance to Compete Act and a former senior career leader at the Office of Management and Budget. Most of them are going to undermark themselves if they don't feel that they can do anything. And they also don't want to look too arrogant. So they're going to say, yeah, you know, I could do most of it, but I always have more to learn. The people who do well on them, frankly, are people who are going to say, yeah, I really am an expert. I can do all of this. People don't even get seen. You don't get far enough down the list for people to have a chance to compete. Well, it's certainly a good way to get rid of something that has been a bugaboo for at least the 30 years I've been following this, and that's called the KSAs, the Knowledge, Skills, and Abilities Statements. 
and people were complaining about those tomes, you know, so long ago. So these are all better ways of getting around that. About the context, too, that we mentioned at the top, some of the federal HR watchers said that there would be challenges because money or what? That is part of it. It's the idea of, you know, having enough funding for HR staffs. Generally, they are pretty small staffs, although they work, you know, very hard, as a lot of these experts say. They have a problem with resources. It's not to mention, you know, there's some issues with OPM as well. They would have a lot of new requirements under the Chance to Compete Act that they'd have to help agencies carry out these hiring practices. For example, earlier this year, there was a GAO report showing that OPM has its own list of internal skills gaps that might prevent it from helping other agencies. There's also been a lot of leadership turnover at OPM. Now the House Appropriations Committee is proposing cuts to their budget. So there's a lot of challenges that OPM might face to actually carry out some of the language of this bill, although it has very significant support, very strong support behind the Chance to Compete Act. It would take a lot of legwork to actually get this off the ground and running if it was enacted. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll watch the upcoming legislative session to see what they do and if they take up that bill. Still to come here, a progress report from the chairman of a Defense Management Reform Commission, Bob Hale. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. Few people know the innards of Defense Department finance as well as my next guest. He was Comptroller and Chief Financial Officer. He was an Assistant Air Force Secretary for Financial Management. And he spent a dozen years at the Congressional Budget Office heading its defense group. Among his current gigs, he's also chairman of the Congressionally Chartered Commission examining DOD's planning, programming, budgeting, and execution process, PPBE. Bob Hale joins me now. Bob, good to have you back. Well, thanks to be here. I appreciate the chance to talk with you. And this is on the occasion following the issuance of the commission's interim report. And I guess the fundamental question, maybe people were hoping against hope that somehow this was going to be an exercise to get rid of PPBE, (laughs) ding dong, the witch is dead, Robert McNamara can rest in peace now. But that doesn't seem to be what really it was all about in reality. Uh, Well, Tom, we've conducted a lot of research over the last year and a half. Some of it included looking at partner nations and their budgeting systems, China and Russia, their budgeting systems, non-DOD federal agencies and their budgeting systems. I think we've kept an open mind about replacing the current PBBE, and we'll continue to do so through our final report next March. But we have, in the last year and a half, I think, found some significant strengths in the current PBBE and some ways to improve it. And we haven't, I think, run across a a system that is clearly better. So at the moment, I think we're probably heading toward improvement, but I will keep an open mind as we complete our research. And if you think of the words planning, programming, and budgeting with a small PPB, then it's Mm -hmm. kind of fundamental to doing any kind of large-scale project. And so maybe maybe it's just the way the world ought to work at some basic sense. It was interesting because the Rand Corporation did the workforce on China and Russia and partner nations. And the Chinese budgeting system has steps similar to PPB. They don't call them the same thing. And they actually did a paper some years ago examining the DOD PPB system and looked at its pros and cons. And it's pretty similar to, to some that we are foreseeing now. So I think you're right. There's some similarity in what you need to do. 
just to carry out a reasonable process. And before we get into some of the details of the interim report, maybe describe what the benefits, in fact, are of PPBE, because it started out as PPB, the E was added in latter years, but it has been durable for a good reason then. I think that's right. It does offer some significant benefits. Uh, One of them, it brings analysis to bear on budget issues rather than relying solely on executive judgment to choose among them, though judgment certainly still plays a role. Uh, And that analysis looks at costs for sure, but also benefits as it it attempts to be a classic cost-benefit analysis. It also takes a multi-year approach. You really can't sensibly plan defense budgets a year at a time because what you do this year can have significant effects two or three years out. The system allows all relevant voices to be heard during this process, and, and that helps build consensus. And I think that's important in a government agency. And finally, it provides a mechanism for senior leaders to make decisions on budgets, and and budgets control a lot of the policy at DOD, and so that's important. These are benefits we want to build on. There's some shortcomings, too, and we'll talk more about them, I think, as we go on, that were areas where we think the system needs improvement. And sometimes I think people maybe conflate it with the acquisition and purchasing system which strictly it's not that. But when people see how long it takes for the actual delivery of things that have been programmed and budgeted, Mm -hmm. specifically the large platforms, then maybe the two do get conflated. What is the connection of PPBE and acquisition? Well, they're definitely related and uh, need to be mutually supportive. But as you say, they are separate systems uh, to do different things. I mean, PPB's job is to allocate resources, acquisitions jobs, figure out how to spend those to get things uh, that the department needs to be uh, overly simplistic. In terms of the critics of PPB, I'd, I'd mention one more thing I think is worth thinking about. Sometimes I think there's a confusion between uh, whether the system is working right and whether you won uh, in in the system. So if you got a great idea, but the federal manager in charge of it says, I'm just not interested, and this is not the highest priority for me, maybe PPVE is working fine there, although you probably don't think it is. Uh, on the other hand, if PPVE stands in the way, and it can sometimes, of making timely decisions about, say, updating technology, then that's a problem that we need to try to address through process changes. And that gets to one of the items that stood out in the interim report, and that is year of execution agility. That seems right. fundamental to the reform idea. Let's talk more about that. Okay. Well, it is important. I mean, you need the ability to make changes as innovation changes, as as new technologies become available, and programs change in their requirements and their ability to meet them. So you definitely need a year of execution agility. And the, the commission is looking at some ways to improve it, particularly by speeding up the uh, so-called reprogramming process. Reprogram is an informal agreement between Congress and DOD that allows the department to move money around in the year of execution, but it can take quite a bit of time. The larger ones we heard repeatedly take six months or more, sometimes less, but often that or more. And that's a long time when you're dealing uh, with rapidly changing technology. So we have some proposals in the interim report to try to speed up this reprogramming process and to make some other changes uh, that uh, we hope uh, will improve your execution agility. We're speaking with Bob Hale. He is chair of the Commission on Planning, Programming, <clears throat> Budgeting, and Execution Reform. And so that's something that the commission said could be implemented 
without a lot of sturm and drang to get it done. What are some of the other things that you suggested in the interim report that could be done without a lot of heavy lift to get them done? Well, let me just be clear. We had two kinds of recommendations we made, as you're alluding to. One, we did something, I think, kind of novel for a commission, at least the ones I'm familiar with. Since we had to do an interim report by law, we decided we would lay out some ideas where the commission hadn't made a final decision and then seek feedback from our stakeholders. And uh, we call these potential recommendations. The uh, reprogramming actually fell in that category of potential recommendations. And there were 10 of those in our interim report. But we also made 13 suggestions of things that we think you could do now or at least begin to implement now. And I'll give you just a couple examples to give you a flavor uh, for those, Tom. Uh, One of them, um, we heard from congressional staff that they get an avalanche of budget data. When the budget proposal is submitted in a normal year, that occurs in early February. But after that, the data they get from the department is episodic, only when they ask for it, sometimes it's late, sometimes not consistent with other data. The commission recommends that the department implement a mid-year budget update for the Congress that would deal with both execution year issues, but also uh, changes in the budget proposal. Some of the things that DOD sends to Congress, they uh, they put together two years before Congress is debating them, some of them longer, and things change. And so we think this budget update briefing would be an opportunity to communicate some of those changes, and Congress can decide whether they want to take them into account in their final appropriations. So that's one of the things. I'll give you one other example. And that is, we think the department and Congress would benefit if DOD established enclaves or networks that allowed them to communicate better about budget information to Congress. So right now, a lot of data is sent. Most of it's sent electronically, but it's often through PDF files or or briefings. Not easy to search, not easy to sort, not easy to update. You could establish enclaves or networks that allow you to send data in a way that is sortable, searchable, and, and easily updated. Uh, and we think that would be a good idea. Defense is looking at this. We recommend that, that they implement it uh, for both classified and unclassified data and both going to Congress, but also coming back information back from Congress as well. Those are the kinds of some of the implement now suggestions that we made. And one mysterious thing happened, at least mysterious to outsiders, and that was the issuance of that memo from the Secretary of Defense saying we're good with some of the things that we can do within our discretion that came out simultaneously with the report. People said, well, how did that happen? I think a similar thing happened way back in the Packard Commission days also. Uh, Well, we're certainly pleased to see uh, the memorandum access a press release from Deputy Secretary Hicks saying that she directed the department to implement the Implement Now recommendations within the purview of the commission. And I might add, although I don't know that it's directly related to the commission, we're seeing some movement in Congress. Both the Hackensack bills have some changes in reprogramming thresholds that we believe would move in the right direction. So we were encouraged um, and look forward to continuing to work closely with DOD and Congress as we move toward a final report. And we have six months after our final report is issued before the commission uh, goes away completely. And I hope we can use that time to answer questions and, and maybe um, uh, push the process along toward implementation. My guest is Bob Hale. He is chair of the Commission on Planning, Programming, Budgeting, and Execution Reform. And we were talking about some of the items that you recommended that can be done within the discretion of DOD and Congress right now. But then there are some more longer-term suggestions that might take legislation. In particular, this comes up a lot, 
and that is the color of money question. It comes up in the context of modernizing and the need to do things quickly and agilely. Sometimes the color of money is an impediment to that. It can be. As you're aware, I think your listeners are probably aware, the Department of Defense is required to pay for certain categories of purchases with certain types of money. So if you're buying something large, you've got to pay procurement. If you're operating something, it's usually operation and maintenance, and they're known as colors of money. Sometimes it can be a problem. If a program manager doesn't anticipate or maybe can't anticipate the exact kind of color of money he or she needs, they may have to pause their program while they try to reprogram or make other changes to get it in the right buckets. The commission is considering recommending for selected organizations only one color of money. So if an organization predominantly did acquisition, uh, for example, maybe it would be allowed to pay for everything it does with procurement funds, even if it's research or operating dollars. That would prevent the delays. I think it raises another issue, though, and that is it's got to be coupled uh, with some restrictions that permit congressional oversight to continue. Uh, that is a, a, a something that's firmly rooted in the Constitution and obviously very important to Congress. And so if we end up making uh, this kind of a proposal on color of money, I think it will come with some restrictions uh, that allow Congress to continue its oversight. And getting down to the plumbing level, one of the issues, and you, you know this as well as anybody, is the disparate information systems, the disparate databases. I think earlier in this interview you said sometimes right. the same numbers about the same things sent to Congress don't match. And so it's not strictly a PPBE issue, but any reform, it seems, would be enabled by somehow getting all of the information systems to line up, the business systems, such that you could get a single cogent view of whatever it is somebody wants to look at. For sure. And, and we think there's benefits to be had uh, by uh, some system changes. For example, uh, the department is currently implementing a single system to handle data in both the programming and budgeting phases of PVBE, call it the Next Generation Resource Management System. Before it came about, there were two systems, one in programming, one in budgeting. So you actually had to transfer the data in the middle of this process. So this is definitely a step in the right direction. I already mentioned, so I won't repeat, that there are probably better ways to use systems to communicate information to Congress and get it back, uh, whether it's budget justification material or, or whatever. And finally, I think another aspect of improving systems and, and management or data analytics, they're becoming quite common and uh, useful in assessing budgets. And some of these systems uh, would allow DOD to make better use of data analytics. And so we, uh, we encourage all of that. As I say, some of it is happening already. Uh, we'd like to see it speeded up or at least continued, and uh, it will certainly get the uh, commission's imprimatur. And that would also help people that either in the DOD or people overseeing the DOD understand maybe some of the systems which now exist as a million disparate pieces because what's mounted on a ship, what's underneath the ship or in the propulsion system, you know, is different from the hull. And you've got maybe thousands of individual pieces. Mm-hmm. And someone says, well, what the heck does this ship cost and what's going on with it? It could help there, too. 
Yes, it could. I mean, I don't want to be naive here. I don't think we're going <laughs> to be able to get rid of large numbers of systems. There are different needs for, for the, met by different managers. But in the PUV area, I think there has been some progress and more can be made toward getting all the data that's used, at least in the programming and budgeting uh, processes, uh, into one system. Uh, maybe even one system that's shared among the military departments, but at a minimum one uh, that is uh, used by the Office of the Secretary of Defense. And in the work of its research, the commission you said earlier looked at partner nations as well as China and Russia. What are some of the chief learnings from outside the United States? Well, uh, as I said, Rand did this work for us, and it's, it's ongoing. They're looking at some additional nations. In China and Russia's case, I think their conclusion was the systems of government are so different that we can't uh, imitate a lot or, or don't want to imitate a lot. Plus, there are some significant failings of both of their uh, budgeting systems. And the partner nations, we've looked at three so far. They're looking at some more, uh, but they've completed work on Australia, uh, the United Kingdom, and Canada. Their one thing that came out is that those nations have more stable funding over a number of years. It doesn't change as much, and sometimes provisions that essentially prohibit anything that we call a government shutdown. Part is because they're smaller and more focused defense needs. Also, they're parliamentary systems of government, so a lot less legislative oversight. But to the extent we could find ways to imitate uh, that uh, stability, it would certainly be helpful. And I'll mention one other category that you didn't raise, Tom, but I think we probably learned most from it, and that is looking at non-DOD agencies and their budgeting systems. Many copied PPB because way back after McNamara put this in effect, President Johnson ordered all the federal agencies to use it. That didn't turn out to be practical. Many of them have PPB-like systems. But they have some provisions that would be helpful to DOD, more flexibility in handling operating money, for example, and especially in the Department of Homeland Security and NASA. And sometimes a better job of uh, evaluating budget programs, not just were they carried out, but did they actually accomplish the goals that they were set to meet. So I think we've learned something uh, from uh, those research, and, and we'll try to reflect it in our, uh, our final recommendations. And I guess we should summarize by asking, what was the fundamental charge? Everyone has lots of vague notions about PPBE, but you can't really have a commission of this magnitude based on vague notions. How would you state the real objective of this whole effort? Well, I think Congress is clear. They said they wanted a comprehensive assessment of the efficiency and efficacy of all four phases of the planning, program, budgeting, execution system. We translated that into five broad goals that you can see if you look at our report, but improving relationships between Congress and DOD and PPBE, uh, uh, promoting innovation and adaptability better, better aligning budgets to strategy. And then uh, one we've talked about, business system improvements, and finally, uh, strengthening the workforce. So uh, we've tried to be comprehensive in our assessment. And uh, I hope that many of these changes uh, will find their way into our final report and eventually uh, be implemented. And just one final question. Many, many years ago, it was famously reported that Jimmy Carter, as president, thought he would get a handle on the defense budget by taking off <laughs> these big briefing books upstairs in the White House at night and going through them with a red pencil. That didn't last very long because it, it just becomes, <laughs> you know, you fall into a lake here. 
But mm-hmm. how does it look externally, say, you know, from your CBO days? I mean, is there a way that ultimately this can be made to be understandable to the lay person that wants to understand just where the six, seven hundred billion dollars goes? Well, I think there are uh, some uh, – we do an overview book uh, each year, the department does, that's easier to understand. I mean, it's not the great American novel, uh, but I think it is easier and written at a, a higher level of aggregation. So there are uh, some attempts. I will, though, because you, you reminded me of my, uh, my uh, CBO and also DOD days, so, so let me – Add a thought that I, when I first heard about this commission, Tom, I thought, well, gee, I mean, we've got all these substantive problems. Now we're going to spend time looking at the process. And then it occurred to me that I'd spent 12 years as a senior DOD manager using PBBE generally successfully, I think, to meet the department's financial needs. But I never had time uh, to step back and ask whether the process could be improved. So busy with the substance uh, that I just couldn't do it. This commission gave me and other commissioners the, the time and the staff help to look at potential changes in processes. And I think we've concluded there are clearly some that could improve the current system. Maybe because I'm sure, but I've come away feeling that this is a useful exercise, and I hope it results in some useful changes. And pretty good reception so far from Congress? I think so. I mean, I mean they're not uh, around we much. Are in, say again? They haven't been around, really, since issuance of the report. Uh, no, well, uh, we pre-briefed uh, key defense committees on this report, so we got some immediate feedback. And now we have asked them for feedback, and they're beginning to say, I mean, September is going to be a busy month, especially for the appropriators and well, authorizers, too. But I hope that we can uh, stick our noses in their offices again. And, yeah, I think we've had good discussions. That is not to say they're going to agree with everything we recommend. Uh, but I think we've had good discussions with Congress. And uh, we've, we've definitely uh, talked to people at DOD as well. And we'll continue to talk to both groups because both have to be involved if any significant changes are going to be made. Former Defense Comptroller Bob Hale is chair of the Commission on Planning, Programming, Budgeting, and Execution Reform. Thanks so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure, Tom. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to the Commission's interim report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Senate has returned to Washington. The House remains on recess for another week. Either way, Congress faces a haystack of work and precious little time in the fiscal year to do it. We get an update from Bloomberg government congressional reporter Zach Cohen. Zach, good to have you back. Sure thing. And, well, where do they begin? I mean, the NDAA might be top of mind. We understand that staff has been working steadily to try to reconcile the House and Senate NDAAs. But there's a more than usually convoluted path to getting that done, too, correct, this year? The name of the game, really, both for the NDAA, the annual uh, military policy bill, uh, as well as government appropriations, uh, which something needs to happen on that by the end of the month. Both of those are still being worked out behind closed doors. The House and the Senate have come up with all of their legislative language for both of those bills. The key is bridging the differences between the House and the Senate. 
it doesn't seem like there's been a lot of talk besides maybe some staff talk over the August recess. As you mentioned, the Senate is back today. The House will be back next week, but they still need to figure out how to bridge the gaps, especially given the fact that the only bill that has come out of the House so far has been along party lines, whereas the Senate bills are, are bipartisan. So the Senate's hoping that those House bills will start to look a little bit more like the Senate's, which will be difficult to get through a House Republican majority. Yes, right. So in the House, the funny dynamic is it's almost as if you have a Democratic bloc and then you have two Republican blocs and together they make up a majority. So couldn't it still pass if all the Democrats like it and half the Republicans do? That's certainly Democrats' argument. And I think we saw this during the debt ceiling fight a couple of months ago, where the House Republicans come up with their version. Democrats say, no way, Jose. And then they come back a couple of months later, and Democrats and Republicans come together on a bipartisan deal that has the support of not just House and Senate leadership, but also, of course, the White House. Uh, President Biden would have has to sign these bills. And so that causes some problems for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. There's certainly a block there in the House Freedom Caucus, including those that never supported his bid for Speaker or only did so after much wrangling that first week in January. And so the, the key will be finding some sort of bipartisan agreement that can get through both chambers without necessarily angering the parts of Kevin McCarthy's majority that he needs to keep on his side in order to remain Speaker. Right. And then, of course, besides the NDAA, there is the budget itself. And a lot of people seem to be assuming it's like being in the, what do they call it, the Big Bend coast of Florida. This thing is coming. Let's just get ready for it. And I'm talking about, of course, a lapse in appropriations. And what is the shape of that likely to be? Because we've seen them last as long as a month and as long as a few hours in recent years. Well, certainly full-year government funding bills for fiscal year 24 are not going to happen by the end of the fiscal year, fiscal 23, which ends in a couple of weeks. As I mentioned, the House has only passed one of its 12 appropriation bills. The Senate has not passed any of them, although the Senate Appropriations Committee has written all 12. And it sounds like the Senate might bring up a couple of the more bipartisan bills, not because they have any chance of becoming law as they stand, but because it would boost the Senate's negotiating positions in conference negotiations with the House. So they're going to have to go to a continuing resolution, a stop gap spending bill. Both McCarthy and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer have discussed maybe one that goes into early December, which lines up with the congressional calendar. And that would give them about two months to hash out an agreement on the rest of the fiscal year. Right. So therefore, batten down the hatches for a <laughs> CR on top of a lapse, possibly. Exactly. It, it really, I don't think it's been decades since the Congress uh, and the White House have agreed on annual government appropriations on time. But these stopgap measures are pretty common. The only complication here is there's a number of government authorizations that also expire at the end of September that need to be reauthorized. Some of them have been negotiated in larger packages. Things like the FAA reauthorization still needs to happen. The Farm Bill, I, I think over 100 programs that expire at the end of September. And so whether there's any complications in getting those into a CR, remains to be seen. But if they're able to get past this stopgap measure and then focus on the full year government funding bill and working out bipartisan agreements on those other authorizations, that could bode well for the rest of the year. We are speaking with Zach Cohen. He's congressional reporter for Bloomberg Government. And on the Senate side, there is a pretty good roster of nominations they've got to deal with. Let's run through some of those. Yeah. I mean, as long as they're still negotiating behind closed doors on appropriations bills in the NDA, might as well fill some floor time with some nominees when they can't get unanimous consent to bring those up otherwise. First up is Philip Jefferson. He's being promoted to be vice chairman of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, the interest rate setting, monetary policy setting folks that, especially here at Bloomberg, we care about. He'll be the second ever black man to actually hold that role, the first in over a decade, uh, which is rather remarkable. And then he's got two colleagues who also could see confirmation uh, this week, Lisa Cook, who's already on the 
Fed, but should be reappointed, as well as Adriana Kubler, who would join the Fed. It would be the first person ever of Latino heritage to join the Fed. Then those two other nominees were watching the National Labor Relations Board member, Gwen Wilcox, who's already on the NLRB, but needs to be renewed. Her term actually expired technically last week. And so that should come up probably as soon as Wednesday. And then Anna Gomez, probably cap off the week, her confirmation to the Federal Communications Commission will actually give Democrats a majority on the FCC for the first time since the Biden administration. So that's a rather important nominee to watch. And what about the Tuberville hold on the promotions in the military? Is there any sign of a crack or a way around that at all? Because it's getting to be kind of long and tooth here how long there is no chairman and on down. It's actually not just not going anywhere. I think it's actually backsliding. I think it's actually getting farther away from an agreement between Senator Tommy Tuberville, the Alabama Republican, who has put this procedural hold on any senior military promotions that usually go through the Senate by unanimous consent. He's got him on one side, as well as congressional Democrats, a fair number of Republicans, and of course, the Pentagon and the Biden administration on the other side. And so Tuberville has some supporters in among Senate Republicans for this, where he's objecting to the Pentagon's policy that reimburses troops when they seek abortions out of state, not for the abortion itself, because that would be in violation of the Hyde prohibition on federal funding for abortions, but it does help with travel costs and stipends and whatnot. The issue now is not only does the DOD not want to get rid of this policy, policy. Not only does Tuberville not want to release his hold until the policy is gone, but he's actually said now that there are a number of nominees that he's been looking at, he's been holding up anyway, and saying that he's got individual concerns on some of them for their support for various diversity, equity, inclusion programs that the Pentagon runs. And so even if you have an agreement on abortion policy, there might be some of these senior military promotions that won't get through absent a Senate floor vote. And Schumer and congressional Democrats have been hesitant to bring up some of these nominees for votes because it would create this precedent that holding up military nominees is something that can just be overridden with a vote. They would rather get this all done in one fell swoop. Wow. So that could linger on Lord knows how long. Exactly right. There does not seem to be an end in sight on this. The NDAA is a vehicle maybe to legislate some of this, but certainly from a political standpoint, Tupperville doesn't seem to be facing the kind of pressure that would get him to release his hold at this point. And Democrats don't seem inclined to give in to his demands that they hold individual floor votes on all of these nominees. And just from the point of view of someone who spends time literally on Capitol Hill and you're in the corridors there, what are outsiders not seeing with some of the members of the Senate, particularly Dianne Feinstein and Mitch McConnell, who are just visibly impaired and all? Is that just fodder for chit chat on television or could something actually happen to deal with the fact that they are having impairment because of age, presumably? The Senate's one of those bodies that is institutional in nature in a couple different ways. One is that senators don't like talking about their colleagues' health problems. And so it's one of those things that very quietly lawmakers will talk about. There are maybe a few that will mouth off on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, about it. But a lot of folks tend to want to give folks like Senators Feinstein and McConnell their space to recover from whatever health challenges they have. Senator John Fetterman, similarly, when he was out undergoing treatment for depression at Walter Reed Medical Center, McConnell obviously had another health scare last week week where he publicly froze when he was having a press conference in Covington, Kentucky. It's the second time, at least publicly, that we've seen this since he had a fall and a concussion at a political fundraising event a couple of months ago. And so certainly lawmakers have concerns about the degree to which McConnell, Feinstein, and some of these older lawmakers can continue to do their job. But in a body that does not have term limits, and as long as they keep getting reelected, they can continue to stay in those positions. One of the key questions, I think, coming up, especially when Senate Republicans meet on Wednesday in a private setting for the first time since the August 
August recess is what, if any, pressure does McConnell get to step aside or step down? He has said that he wants to serve out the rest of his current term as leader, which ends after the 2024 elections. But certainly given these health challenges, I think there's going to be more questions that he and his team will need to answer. Yeah, clinging is a bipartisan activity, isn't it? It's hard to give up the influence and the title and the prestige. This is something we've seen over the years. I remember Thad Cochran, a Republican from Mississippi, who stayed in the Senate probably beyond when you had the mental faculty to do so. There's a long history of senators with health challenges continuing to serve. The question becomes not just for voters, but for members of Congress is do those colleagues continue to have the the mental faculties to do their job? And that's a really tough question to answer. And really, at the end of the day, really only question that the senator and ultimately voters ballot box can answer. Zach Cohen is congressional reporter for Bloomberg government. Thanks so much. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. The Postal Service and its law enforcement division are stepping up a battle against rising mail theft. Criminals are robbing letter carriers for their keys to steal mail and packages and to commit financial crimes like altering checks. USPS and its Postal Inspection Service are hardening blue collection boxes and working to curb change of address fraud. For details, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with U.S. Postal Inspector Michael Martell. In the past few years, we have seen an increase in actually robberies of our letter carriers, which is alarming to us because it is the safety of our employees that are out serving our neighborhoods day in and day out. Robberies of our letter carriers for access to the U.S. mail to commit financial fraud, check fraud, things of that nature. In direct response to that, the Postal Service and the Postal Inspection Service have instituted sort of a holistic approach in dealing with all of these things, improving our employees' safety, improving the safety of the U.S. mail, and of course that improves the safety of the the customers as well, the, the American people. So we've expanded what we call Project Safe Delivery, which we announced back in May, It's a holistic approach to dealing with mail theft and mail-related crimes, everything from robberies over letter carriers and mail theft, parcel theft, to fraudulent postage in the mail system and fraudulent change of address requests through the mail. We're tagging those items from bottom to top, the Postal Inspection Service, along with the Postal Service, hand-in-hand to address the problem. The Postal Service is upgrading around 49,000 locks on our blue boxes, those blue boxes everybody has on their corner where everybody likes to to drop mail off, where we're upgrading 49,000 locks this first year of Project Safe Delivery and upgrading over 12,000 blue collection boxes to those with the most advanced anti-theft features and security measures. There's a whole lot that goes into that. We're putting national assets where they need to be from coast to coast, really to deal with postal crimes in, in a local level, putting national assets in an area to advance local cases, arrest criminals that are perpetrating postal crimes and putting them behind bars. Given this increase in theft here, what are the concerns for customers, particularly their trust and their faith in USPS to uh, make sure that payment gets where it needs to go uh, safely and securely? The core mission of the Postal Inspection Service is the sanctity and security of the U.S. mail, postal service employees, and, and the customers themselves. We want the American people to have the utmost faith that if they're dropping that bill payment into the mail stream, it will absolutely arrive to its destination. And that's it's one of our top priorities. And that's why you're seeing really the announcement and push and this sort of 
holistic approach, not only to arrest those that are committing these crimes, increasing security measures, and really awareness to stop people from becoming victims in the first place. So it's really an important solution end to end to increase the sanctity and security of the U.S. mail. And it's it's a top priority. One thing I've heard in recent months here is just the phenomenon of this change of address fraud where, you know, fraudsters will submit that change of address slip to intercept mail that way. And then in terms of that as a a vector for fraudsters to obtain these checks and, and commit the kind of fraud that they're doing, can you tell me a little bit more about where we are with that? Has that also been on the rise as some other things have been? And what is the Postal Inspection Service doing to head that off? In the past few years, we have seen change of address fraud sort of increase to be used in a in a number of nefarious ways. However, in the past few months since the, the launch of the expanded project Safe Delivery, the Postal Service has stepped up security with change of address requests and instituted dual factor authentication items and different security items in place depending on how you go about your change of address request. And almost it seems is 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 completely going to mitigate the issues that were appearing before as far as change of address request fraud has been seen very very effective method to really stopping that the shift it seems is to go from an arrow key system to i guess like an arrowless key system how ultimately under this new system will uh, letter carriers be able to to open those blue collection boxes and and how is this ultimately going to address this goal of fewer robberies of letter carriers and, and fewer instances of mail related crime as I said before, the safety of our carriers, our letter carriers out on the street delivering for America every day is a top priority. So getting too far into what's going to do what and when and where and how they're going to get into the box, that's kind of the reason we're in the jam that we are or, or seeing the, the issue that we are is because bad guys were keen to how best to get into our boxes and steal mail. And isn't this a great, easy crime? Can I do that? Uh, So I don't want to get too far into the weeds. But what I will say is that the Postal Service has researched a variety of options. And moving forward with some of these new solutions, those keys that were used before will not open a box without some other sort of item or authentication or whatever it might be. And what that does is it it devalues the key. It devalues the very thing those criminals looking to rob our letter carriers are after in the first place. So we're looking to increase safety for our letter carriers by employing a, a technological approach to the issue and really devalue those, those keys that we've seen in the past. I don't want to get into what exactly we'll do, what, when, and where for the carrier or what gets into the box, because that's exactly led to the problem we've seen now. That's that's going to be sensitive security information from the post office. I realize that this may be the vast minority of cases, you know, really an outlier more than anything else. But it occurs to me that in some very limited cases, you know, postal employees themselves might have a a, a hand in these kinds of schemes or in these kinds of you know, criminal situations. I, you know, I think it's good housekeeping for any business, organization, agency to have some sort of insider threat type program. What's going on there? Sure. Well, actually, the Postal Service has an, a, a second entire federal law enforcement division 
uh, to counter just that sort of situation. So the United States Postal Service Office of Inspector General, who I do not work for, uh, they investigate any and all uh, waste, fraud, and abuse, and criminal conduct by Postal Service employees. As we said in the beginning, jury, Postal Inspection Service wants to take every effort we can, every opportunity we can to sort of spread the message of postal crime prevention. I don't want anybody to be a victim of any sort of crime through U.S. Postal Service. I have a couple specific Postal Inspection Service mail theft prevention tips that I can share too. So first is is simple. Don't let incoming or outgoing mail sit in your mailbox. You can significantly reduce the chance of being victimized simply by removing mail from your mailbox every day. Um, then, of course, deposit that outgoing mail, uh, whether it's a bill payment or whatever important correspondence you're trying to send, inside your local post office in the lobby there at your place of business, if allowed. And you can also, of course, hand a letter directly to your letter carrier if you happen to see them. The other great sort of product from the Postal Service is you can sign up for informed delivery. Informed delivery is literally an email you can receive from the Postal Service, which will preview images of what mail you should be expecting to receive in the mail. And that is, as you can imagine, a great tool to identify if something might be missing. Michael Martell, an inspector with the Postal Inspection Service, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.